The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning. Today we start a new series on Mark. So, Mark loves it. Mark loves that, by the way. I have no idea whose idea that was, so I don't know where that came from. Um, but now we're going to be starting the Gospel of Mark today. And, uh, and listen, um, I think we did this, a sermon, a sermon series in the Gospel of Mark, I think back in 2013. And so we know you guys remember all of those messages, right? And so we're going to start the Gospel of Mark um, for the next few weeks. And, uh, you know, I really haven't heard that many series on the book of Mark. And uh, I think it's because throughout most of church history, it's really like the forgotten gospel, because it's the shortest one, it's the most brief, but really it shouldn't be that way because it's the first gospel that was written. And, uh, and if you remember, there were two gospels, Matthew and John, that were written by disciples of Jesus. And then the two that were not written by his actual disciples were Luke and Mark. And these two function kind of like reporters and they're talking to eyewitnesses and, and writing down their accounts. And, you know, skeptics might say, well, you know, if they weren't eyewitnesses, how can we have confidence in these sources if they're not an eyewitness to these events? And I would say the opposite is true. I would say it's kind of like how you think of a, a modern-day reporter when a reporter, a reporter rarely sees something as an eyewitness, as an eyewitness event. Normally, they're, they're taking people's stories and coalescing them into one big story. And this is kind of like what's happening with uh, the book of Mark, but also the book of Luke in the Gospels. And so we would say if, those, if all those stories come together and they all match, then we can have greater confidence in this gospel that's indeed true. And this is really how Luke and Mark were both written. So before we get into the passage today, I love a good origin story. And if you look at movies, I love when certain characters, you, you kind of hear the backstory of how they became that character. And so today, as we start, we're going to begin with asking the question, who was Mark? You might know him as John Mark. If you remember in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches a sermon, this riveting sermon, and over 3,000 people get saved and start following Jesus. And then shortly after, this great persecution breaks out against the church, and then Stephen is martyred, and then the Christians disperse. It's the great dispersion. And that actually leads to the gospel spreading further because of the persecution. And now Peter has a target on his back, and in Acts chapter 12, he is arrested by Herod and put in prison. And everyone thinks that Peter is going to be killed. And he most likely is because Stephen's been killed, and so has James, the brother of John, the other gospel writer, John. And then, so now Peter's in prison. There's this one night where Peter's in prison, and he is asleep between two guards. He's chained to both guards. And this angel appears and wakes up Peter, and the chains fall off of his hands, and this angel leads him out of prison. And at first, Peter thinks he is seeing a vision. But once he realizes this actually is real life, we can read in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, where it says, when he realized this, meaning this is actually really happening, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So this is Mary's house. Everyone had the name Mary back then. It was just a common name. And this is the mother of John Mark. And her house had become this central meeting spot for the church there in Jerusalem. And so while Peter is in prison, they're holding this prayer service for Peter 
while he's in prison. And then during that meeting, Peter shows up at the door. And he starts knocking on the door. And at first, they don't believe that it's him. If you go to, over to Acts chapter 12, it says in the passage that they think it's Peter's angel, which I find hilarious because it's like they're saying, there's no way it's Peter. It's probably just his angel because that's more believable, right? But they're in this house having this prayer meeting for Peter on his behalf. He shows up at the door and who's in the house witnessing all of that? Well, it's, it's young John Mark. He's right there. And you fast forward to Acts chapter 13, when Barnabas and Paul, they set out on their first missionary journey. And so in Acts 13, verses 4 through 5, John Mark is with Barnabas Barnabas and Paul on this journey. It says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. And so this is John Mark, and he is now young in his faith, and just a few verses later, John Mark is going to abandon Paul and Barnabas and go back to Jerusalem, not sure why, and then, remember, Paul didn't like this. He, he sees, you know, you're abandoning us, why are you abandoning us? And, uh, and so on Paul's second missionary journey, Barnabas wants to take John Mark, who's also Barnabas' cousin, and then Paul says, no, we're not going to take this guy. He, he abandoned us last time. We're not taking him on the second missionary journey. So this leads to Paul and Barnabas parting ways. And we don't hear more about John Mark until later. But by the end of Paul's life, Mark was back in Paul's favor. And really, you can credit, I think, Barnabas for a lot of that. And so in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, it says, Paul writes, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, Concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. So, so Paul and Mark are restored, I think, mainly because of Barnabas' relationship with both. And so he regains Paul's confidence, and Paul says, I tell you to welcome this man back. And then over in 1 Peter 5, Peter refers to John Mark as his son. You know, some believe that Peter was the one that led John Mark to Jesus. It might have been that powerful moment inside that house that did it for him. And he saw that, that Peter miraculously shows up to that house at the prayer meeting that's for Peter. It may be that moment that, that convinced him that this is, this is indeed, Jesus truly is the Son of God, the sent one. Now, many believe when you read Mark, that you are hearing the words of Peter as he would have been the one that told Mark all of these stories. And if you look at the book, it, it really takes on Peter's personality because this gospel, Peter was a man of action, and this is kind of how Mark is written. It is fast-paced and action-oriented. So if you prefer comic books to textbooks, then Mark is the gospel for you. So if you remember, Peter's life was full of all kinds of highs and lows, ups and downs. I love what Chase said to me this week. He said, you know, Peter was the only guy to walk on water, but also the only guy to sink. And that's a really good depiction of what Peter's life was like. His life was full of highs and lows, ups and downs. And the book of Mark includes Peter's lows. So if Peter is indeed the one telling Mark these stories, we see lots of Peter's lows in this story. And so Peter doesn't try to paint himself as some hero in the gospel of Mark. 
I think one of the key themes for this book that's really important is that discipleship is not simply just following some rules or following a code of conduct, but, conduct, but it is a relationship with Jesus. If you're a skeptic or you're not yet a Christ follower, I think this is really important for you to hear. I don't know what, what church background you might have or what's been told to you, but discipleship is not about just following some list of rules, but it's about a relationship with Jesus. That's what he wants with you and for you. And I think it makes sense whenever we consider that Peter is telling Mark these stories because his close relationship with Jesus bleeds all over these pages as we read them. So we're going to hear from several different wilderness voices this morning. The first voice is that of the prophets. Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So we hear the word gospel today, and most of us think of it as a Christian word, don't we? But it simply just means good news. The old English word is God's spell, and the Greek word is euangelion, which you heard a lot throughout the First Corinthians series. And Mark is writing this from Rome, and his audience is predominantly Gentile Christians. And for a Roman citizen, the word good news, the word just meant, the word gospel, or euangelion, just meant good news about the emperor. And if a king went into battle and won, a messenger was sent back to bring the good news, the good news of victory. But gospel, when used in reference to Jesus, it is an announcement, a proclamation about his victory over sin, death, and hell made available to us in his life, death, and resurrection. And we covered all this a lot in, in the last series. So what do you notice about the start of Mark's gospel? Well, first of all, there's no genealogy like we see over in the book of Matthew. There's no nativity scene like we see over in the book of Luke. Mark, Mark starts his gospel with John the Baptist. And verses 2 and 3 are these combined quotes from Malachi chapter 3 and Isaiah chapter 40 predicting John the Baptist's coming as a messenger. Now, if you're new to the Bible, after the book of Malachi, of course, the Bible is divided into the Old Testament and New Testament, and we believe that there were 400 years of silence. The last prophet in the Old Testament was Malachi, and there was 400 years, a 400-year gap of no revelation from God from end of Malachi to beginning of the life of Jesus. And there had been no prophet, no revelation for 400 years, and God was silent. But the question is why? Why was God silent for so long? It's really interesting to think about what happened between the Old Testament and New Testament, just right there in that little part of the world to prepare the way for the gospel to spread quickly. There were political changes. There were five different nations that ruled Palestine during that time. So Persia and Greece and Egypt and Syria and Rome, all at some point had a role in that section of, of geography. And then we see there's cultural changes. And this is the spread of Greek language and the highway system. The Romans started building a highway system that made travel a little bit easier. 
And there's relative peace. This is the Pax Romana. This is a time of relative peace in that part of the world. And this would allow for the quick spread of the gospel. There is a language that unifies most of the people. There is a highway system. There is relative peace in that section of the world. And then lastly, there's religious changes. This is the Jews began to have a new zeal for the law. As they're under Roman rule there in Palestine and also dispersed all over that region, new parties like the Pharisees and Sadducees and new institutions like synagogues to teach the law and the Sanhedrin begin to crop up. And so there's religious changes happening. And it's amazing to see all that God was doing behind the scenes to get the world prepared for a quick spread of this gospel message. Here's the principle, I think, for us. Even though sometimes God seems silent, it doesn't mean he's not working. God works in the silence much of the time. I think it's true in our lives as well. I mean, some of you are sitting here and you might be walking through a time in your life where you just, it feels like he's distant, he's silent. You're asking the questions, where is he? I think the good news for us is that often God works in and through the silence, bringing about a greater work than we could ever imagine. He was doing that, I think, in this time of silence for the nation as well. So after 400 years, John the Baptist shows up as the last Old Testament prophet pointing to Jesus. We technically put him in the Old Testament category, even though he's recorded in the New Testament. He's really of the Old Testament tradition, as you'll see in a moment. And he's the last prophet pointing to Jesus. And in ancient times, before a king would visit a part of the kingdom a messenger would go ahead of the king, and this would include repairing roads and and preparing the people for his visit. So during this time when God was silent, worshiping God for the people of Israel was no longer their focus. The people of Israel got so caught up in, in their zealousness for the law, their zeal for the law, they got so caught up in who was in charge, government and politics, so they, 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 it's like they, they lost focus of Yahweh and, and, and worshiping Yahweh, and politics really became their religion during that time. And this is why they needed to repent and turn back to Yahweh, true worship of Yahweh. They were so zealous for the law, they were prone to miss the one to whom it pointed to. And then God breaks his silence and sends John the Baptist And so we see in verse 4, the voice of John the Baptist, and it says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So why is John out there in the wilderness? I mean, wouldn't it be more convenient just to stay in the city where all the people are located and and, and preach your message there where the, where the people live. So why is he out there in the wilderness? Well, like, like many other Old Testament prophets, the way Old Testament prophets would live was a, it was a way of reminding Israel of, their spirit, of her spiritual condition. So it's why Hosea was told by God to go marry a woman who was going to cheat on him over and over again because God said, I'm going to image to the people of Israel what they are doing to me. They're committing spiritual adultery against me. And so I'm going to use Hosea and his life and his marriage to image that back to the people. So God would often ask a prophet to live in such a way that it, it, it sends a message to the people of Israel. 
You know, we see, we see wilderness all over the Bible. After Adam and Eve's sin, they are kicked out of the garden and they're out of God's presence and they're now in a wilderness. You know, Israel gets set free from Egypt, but on their way to the promised land, what happens? They spend 40 years in the wilderness. The wilderness is, is deeply symbolic in Scripture. You know, you, you can't stay alive in the wilderness without God's direct intervention. In the wilderness, Israel had to rely on God's provision, water, meat, and manna. The wilderness has a way of, of drawing us back towards God. I think it's why God often sends his people into a wilderness. We seem to hear his voice better in the wilderness. And so John living out there in the wilderness was like saying to Israel, as a people, you're in a spiritual wilderness that's far worse than the physical wilderness endured by your ancestors all those years ago. So John's out there in the wilderness, and he's saying, he's not just saying, come get baptized, but he is calling them to repentance, calling them back to God. And repentance is this concept that comes from the Greek word metanoia, which means to turn around. This is a, a, a completely new attitude towards God and sin that leads to life change. Now, for you here this morning, you might be in, in some kind of a wilderness. And I think for us, if you look at the Israelites as well, this is when we tend to be most prone to idolatry, but also primed for repentance. Remember the, the Israelites, what did they do in the wilderness? They, that's when they built the golden calf. This is, for I think, for you and I, when we can be most prone to idolatry. You're in this, this, this distant place, this dry place, this wilderness place, and you're just trying to find a way to numb the pain. Find a way to feel something. And so we often turn to idolatry, just like the Israelites did. And that can be what we do in the midst of a wilderness, but it can also be a time that we're most primed for repentance. And this is God's goal. This is what God's trying to accomplish in his people. And so the question for us this morning is, how is he calling us to repent? What areas of our lives is he calling us to turn away from and turn towards him? We'll talk more about repentance as we go. But look down at verse 6. It says, Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So we hear what, what John wore and ate. And if you're going to eat locusts, you better chase it down with some honey, right? That, that should probably happen. And I always love how these Jesus films depict John the Baptist. He was walking around like some crazy man with his unkempt hair, hair going in all directions, and just honey caked in his beard, and there's locusts flying around. He's just grabbing them out of the air, eating them in, with his mouth, right? It's just this comical picture sometimes that we think of John the Baptist. And he sounds crazy, but this was really like normal desert behavior. I mean, what else are you going to eat out there in the desert besides locusts and honey, right? So why does this describe 
John's clothing and food. Well, the audience would understand this reference that this, this coming messenger, John the Baptist, his ministry would be like that of Elijah, the prophet. And so Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, predicted that a prophet would come like Elijah, not, not Elijah reincarnated, but this is a ministry like Elijah. And in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus confirms that John the Baptist is that man who would have an Elijah-like ministry. We also learn from what John wears, what he eats, that John was humble. He's not trying to point people to himself. He is dressed humbly, and his message is also clothed in humility. So his preaching points not to himself, but to the coming Messiah. And he says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Untying someone's sandals was something that maybe a slave might do in that culture. And John is saying, I'm not even worthy to do something that a servant would do. I, I, I can't even, it'd be an honor to do that for this coming Messiah. I think a really convicting question for people like me and anyone else who teaches is this, does our teaching, does our preaching point to ourselves or does it point people to Jesus? That's a, a question I wrestle with all the time whenever we have to teach. Does it point to us or does it point people to Jesus? Does your life, does your, your words, your, your deeds, your actions, do they point to yourself or does it point people to the Savior? It's a question for all of us, I think. And then we see here that John, John says he baptizes with water, but there's going to be one that comes who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And so what does that mean? Baptize with the Holy Spirit. Well, baptize means to immerse, but it also means to identify with. And so this means that whenever you and I trust Christ, surrender to Christ, that the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us. And this was a fulfillment of prophecy that God would send his spirit to indwell his people, and the Holy Spirit plays this active role in our lives. And so just as the Gospel of Mark is often the forgotten gospel, the Holy Spirit is often the forgotten person of the Trinity, which it shouldn't be because that's the person of the Trinity that is, is indwelling us once you become a Christian and we identify with. And the Spirit plays this active role in our lives, convicting us of sin. So whenever you're sitting and you're hearing the word preached or listening to a song and you begin to feel some conviction, that is the Holy Spirit working on you. And if you become a Christian, then then you can credit the Holy Spirit opening up your heart to receive the gospel, and, and the Holy Spirit is the one that empowers us in our growth. And you see, we, we can't take credit for any of that. I think forgetting the Spirit leads us into pride. And so we hear from the voice of John the Baptist, then we hear from another voice, the voice of the Father. In verse 9 it says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven and said, you're my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. You know, we watched several get baptized last Sunday, and you saw the video a few minutes ago. Before we baptize people, we make sure that they understand some things about their sin and their need for a savior and that baptism is this public faith profession. 
And so that's how we talk about baptism as it relates to us. It's a picture of our cleansing or a picture of us being washed clean because of our sin. So the question is, well, well then why did Jesus get baptized? Because he doesn't have any of that. So why was Jesus baptized? Well, I think this was, this was controversial, but if you read over in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist begins arguing with Jesus in that, in that gospel, and John says, I need to be baptized by you. I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. But then how does Jesus answer him over in Matthew chapter 3? Jesus says, no, this needs to happen so that we can fulfill all righteousness. So what does that mean? Well, it means that even though Jesus never sinned, that he identifies with all of mankind in his sin, in our sin. So why does Jesus get baptized? He gets baptized to identify with us in our state. Even though he was perfect and, and sinless, he identifies us in our sinful state, identifies with us in our sinful state. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21, Paul writes, for our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that's the righteousness, I think, that he's talking about in Matthew chapter 3, that Jesus was made sin on our behalf. And baptism is a picture of that. And so when Jesus comes up out of the water, the Spirit descends on him like a dove, and then he hears the Father's voice. And I love the, 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 the statement, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. You know, every person wants to hear those words. One of the most powerful moments at the TBC baptism that I love, besides the baptism itself, is when a father embraces their son or daughter after they've baptized them. I love that embrace. I love that moment. You know, at the baptism of Jesus, we assume there was an audience but part of the audience was the Spirit and the Father are both watching. And the Father affirms Jesus here and says, this is my son. And I want you to understand something, that we believe in Christian theology that whatever happens, because we are identified with Jesus in our salvation, that whatever happens to Jesus, if you're in Christ, it's as if it's happened to you. It's applied to you. And so this statement that the father makes of his son, if you're in Christ, this statement is true of you as well. That God can look at you and say, you are my beloved and, and with you I am well pleased. And whether you and I hear that from a parent or not, those words become true for us in Jesus. It becomes true for you in Jesus. And so then we hear the voice of the Spirit. In verse 12, it says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. I read those, this couple of verses, and you just think, man, what a scene that is. Just let that sink in for a moment. You've got the Holy Spirit compelling Jesus to go out into the wilderness and he's going to be there for 40 days and he's being tempted by Satan. It even mentions these wild animals, which some think it refers to demonic forces, but it could be 
literal animals. But then the angels are ministering to Jesus during these 40 days. I mean, what a picture out there in that wilderness. Now, this might seem strange, but it is incredibly significant. Israel wandered in the wilderness how long? 40 years. And Jesus goes out there in the wilderness for 40 days. Why? Well, you see, you and I, we don't, we don't do so well in the wilderness. But Jesus does. You see, where Adam and Eve failed, where Israel failed, where you and I fail, Jesus holds up. Jesus stands up to it. And he doesn't just stand up to temptation, but he, he puts Satan and all of evil on notice. You see, this is the beginning of his cosmic battle against darkness and against all evil right here. This is the beginning of that. And then Mark includes this interesting phrase. I mentioned a while ago that he was with the wild animals. And this is written around the time of Nero, who was putting Christians to death. So before the Holocaust happened that we know about, there was another Holocaust that happened with Christians many, many years prior. And Nero is putting Christians to death and doing it in all kinds of creative ways. And one of the ways he would do it was to feed them to wild animals. So some believe this is about that. And some believe this is included in the text as a message to the followers of Jesus to say, whatever temptation, whatever persecution comes your way, Jesus experienced it and he stood up. And he stood up under it on your behalf. You see, we have the same Holy Spirit that's ministering to us, that's empowering us for growth. You know, last week, Tim showed us that an open door does not mean there won't be adversaries. And I think sometimes we can be, you and I, we can be at the center of God's will, but it still feels like we're in a wilderness surrounded by wild animals. You see, Jesus was right. Remember, Jesus was compelled by the Spirit to go out there to the wilderness. Jesus is right where the Spirit wanted him to be in that wilderness. That's where God had him go. I want you to look with me in, in verse 14, where it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We see once again here how Mark likes to leave out lots of details. He says in a few words, now after John was arrested, wait, what, John got arrested? Where was that part of the story? Well, that's in a different gospel. But John gets arrested and then right here, Jesus begins his ministry, and he would, re he would preach repentance just like John. His entire mission would be characterized by repentance and turning to the king and surrendering to him. So I want to spend a little bit of time here just talking about what does real repentance look like? What does it look like? I think we can define it this way. Repentance is recognizing sin leading to godly sorrow resulting in true change. I want to ask us some questions this morning as it relates to repentance. The first question is, do we fully acknowledge our guilt? 
Are we people who own our sin, fully acknowledge that what we do is wrong whenever it is wrong, instead of making excuses and making caveats based on motive and those kinds of things? Secondly, do we have true sorrow over sin? In 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about worldly sorrow and and godly sorrow, the the difference between between those two things. Do we have true sorrow over sin? And we see how it it, it grieves God, and it's a violation of a relationship and not just a rule. And then thirdly, is our repentance motivated by fear of punishment? I mean, you have kids. I know that you understand this concept. But is our is our repentance, is it just motivated by a fear of consequences instead of being motivated by true love for God? And then lastly, does, re- does our repentance lead to true life change? What does repentance look like in my life and in your life? This past week, I had a chance to catch up with an old friend. This was a guy who spent three years here stationed at Fort Hood. And he's now back on the East Coast serving at uh, Fort, I think Fort Bragg. And uh, he's actually retired now, but he's, he just got out of the military. And his dad passed away last week, and so I wanted to call and just talk to him about that and see how his family's doing. And it was encouraging to hear from him because he just kind of walked me through how he became a Christian. And he said, you know, when I came to TBC, he said, I was a, a hardened, I was a broken man. I wouldn't even call myself a Christ follower at that point. But his wife's idea was to come here to TBC. And he said, one, one day, Gary preached this sermon and really talked about repentance. And, and my friend was just cut to the heart. And he felt God speaking to him on that day. And so he came down front. He talked with Gary. And he said, you know, that was really kind of a turning point for me where I began to understand what it meant to follow Jesus and what repentance looks like. And it's encouraging to hear from him and, and hear that He's a man who's walking with Jesus and leading his family well, and they're plugged into a, a, a Bible-teaching church, a godly church. And he, he talks about things like repentance and confession. He understands what those things mean now. And it's encouraging to hear him, how he's living on mission where he lives there in North Carolina. It's encouraging to me. And so this morning, I want to offer the same invitation to you. I don't know where you stand with God this morning, where you stand with Christ. But if you consider yourself not yet a Christ follower, I want to invite you this morning to respond. Just as we pray in a moment, as we sing, I want to invite you just to, right where you sit, just cry out to God and tell him, God, I want to repent. I want to turn to you. I'm broken over my sin. I want to have true godly sorrow over my sin. I want to turn to you in repentance. If that's where you find yourself, the voice of God is calling out to you this morning, inviting you to come to him, inviting you to turn to him and repent. And the good news is that your your relationship with him is not based on your merit or your good works, but it's based on the good merit and the good works of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. Maybe you're here this morning and you're a Christian, but you're just struggling, which I think is probably all of us. 
And maybe there's some things in your life that you're, you're, you're hiding right now that God wants to bring to light. And the voice of God in your life, he's calling you to repent and turn to him and turn away from those things, whatever those things may be, and turn towards the Savior and embrace the grace that he has for you. Why don't we stand together for a moment? I'm going to pray for you, and we're going to praise him. God, we are so thankful that you extend yourself to us. God, you've used so many voices throughout history to bring your people back to you. And God, I pray this morning that you would speak through the voice of your scriptures to to really invade our hearts and our souls. And God, I pray for anyone sitting here that, that may not be a follower of yours yet. I pray that you speak to their hearts right now, that they would turn to you, understanding who you are, understanding what you want for them and, and, and who you are to them, Father, as their God and as their Savior. God, I also pray for just anyone else sitting here that would consider themselves a Christ follower that, God, you would help us to Whatever wilderness we're walking through right now, Father, I pray that you would help us to hear your voice in that wilderness. Even though that it seems like silence and distance, I pray that we would still understand that you are working behind the scenes in ways that we can't even imagine or fathom. And God, draw us to yourself and humble us, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen.